is the fourth episode of What's Next for the EU, a European People's Party Group exclusive podcast. My name is Georgina Wright, and I'm the director of the Europe programme at the Paris-based think tank, Institut So many of us are eager for life to get back to normal. Over 70% of the EU's adult population has now been vaccinated, restaurants are opening, and people are starting to return to work. But for many of us, especially young people, this is the beginning of another tricky period. Youth unemployment increased drastically during the pandemic. According to a recent European Parliament report, 1.1 million young people aged 15 to 24 and a further 1 million young people aged 25 to 29 lost their jobs between the end of 2019 and the first quarter of 2021. And with so many businesses closed, job openings are few and far between. So what could the EU do to help? To discuss all of this, I'm joined by Lydia Pereira, Portuguese politician, member of the European Parliament since 2019, and president of the youth of the European People's Party, the official youth wing of the European People's Party group. Monica Gregorskut, probably mispronouncing that, sorry, Monica, a researcher at the Brussels-based think tank Bruegel, and Mark Stiert, a researcher at the European University Institute in Florence. Lydia, Mark, Monica, welcome to this podcast. Hello. Hello. Well, let's dive right in. So, as I mentioned, youth unemployment in Europe is particularly high, but it's especially high in some countries. So in the Mediterranean countries, for example, it's as high as 30%. So, Lydia, perhaps I can start with you. You know, you represent a constituency in Portugal. You're also very active on this issue. How is youth unemployment in your country right now? Thank you, Georgina, for the for this initiative. Um, well, indeed, uh, the youth unemployment is a very serious uh, problem. Uh, as you rightly said, in some countries, um, they are more affected than others. Um, southern countries in particular, Southern Europe countries are, um, uh, in fact, the most um, affected. Uh, Portugal uh, is uh, doing slightly better compared to Spain or, or Greece or Italy at the moment, but still it's quite worrying when we check the numbers. Um, during the pandemic, the unemployment rate uh, did not raise uh, or increase significantly in the in, in Portugal uh, in general, but only because of the temporary measures uh, that were uh, applied, uh, that were designed and applied to support the com- uh, company's businesses in general. So, uh, and in, in return, in, in order to have access to those measures, uh, to, that, to that support from the state, uh, the companies couldn't fire. Um, so, um, but you know, in any crisis, young people are usually uh, the most vulnerable. We've seen that in the past uh, two crises, um, uh, and uh, this is this crisis is not an ex- exception. So if we pick up, um, uh, if if we look um, uh, with the with the you know surgical uh, eyes uh, to uh, to the data, uh, young people unemployment among young young people is what is the variable that grew the most. So in in Portugal, uh, the rate rose uh, from eighteen point thirty in twenty nineteen. Um, last year before the pandemic to 22.6%. Uh, so this is according to the most recent numbers. 
Um, and uh, in the same period last year, it was 26.7%. So we will have more numbers uh, very soon without the effect of the seasonal um, jobs uh, that were created during the summer. Uh, but as far as we know, uh, the unemployment rates, uh, the youth unemployment rates in Spain and Greece are above 30% and in Italy uh, around 27%. So it is uh, a big issue. Uh, it is uh, a ticking bomb, bomb because we know the unemployment raises a number of other social issues um, and that might, in extreme situations might uh, be the, the origin of, of, of phenomena like uh, populism and so on. So we really have to make, to make sure that, that we have the necessary programs and the necessary response to actually not leaving, leave anyone behind. Uh, we've been talking about this motto in the past 12 months, uh, exhaustively, but, uh, we really have to deliver because otherwise people are, people's trust in, in politicians and in politics, um, uh, is, uh, is gone. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, my first comment on, on the matter. Great, thank you. And I, and I guess we will come back to some of those issues about how can we make sure that we don't have a, a lost generation. Um, Monica, maybe I can turn to you. You've done a lot of sort of digging into statistics about this. You know, clearly youth unemployment increased during the pandemic, um, and but it was also particularly bad during the 2008-2009 financial crisis. You know, listening to what Lydia just said, you know, there are measures in place uh, during the pandemic which enabled a lot of businesses to survive. So perhaps before kind of looking at what happened during this recent pandemic, how different sort of is this wave of unemployment from the past one? Okay, so uh, this time um, we observed that uh, recovery is faster and um, unemployment uh, did not reach as high levels as during the financial crisis. But uh, as it was last time, uh, it's much more severe for uh, younger cohorts. And uh, for people uh, on average in European Union uh, who are more than 25 years, uh, unemployment, uh, unemployment rate increased only slightly. But uh, for European youth, uh, they experience on average in European Union 3% uh, increase. And uh, as uh, Lydia mentioned before, we observed, and, uh, we observed um, huge differences across, across countries. Uh, so, uh, mentioned before, Spain and uh, Greece, uh, where youth unemployment increased in April uh, by 10%. And uh, even if uh, we observe some recovery, it's still uh, high among young workers. But uh, what I wanted to uh, notice is that looking at unemployment rate uh, during pandemic, uh, during pandemic didn't uh, give us complete uh, picture. Uh, as uh, young people often uh, do not feel the requirement to apply for unemployment benefits. Uh, usually, they do not have enough working experience. And uh, when we look at the unemployment, uh, uh, when we look at the employment rate, we see that the decrease is even higher among young workers. Uh, some explanation is that uh, young uh, people work in the sectors which were hit the most, like hospitality or restaurants. But it seems that insufficient social protection of young workers plays a role as well. Uh, for example, in Poland, when, uh, where we noticed the highest outflow of young from the labor market, 
a considerable part of them, around 150,000 of people never claim for unemployment benefits. Uh, and the requirement there is only one year of working experience. Uh, it's not much um, if only the young people will have a sufficient uh, social protection. And that's a really important aspect as well and something we will come back to basically you know what is the member state's responsibility in terms of you know providing social protection ensuring that that everyone has access to it versus what the EU can do mark you know you've been listening to all of this um, sitting in 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 Florence you've been sort of researching this but you've also kind of lived and traveled in, in different EU countries can you tell us perhaps what the EU has been doing uh, to address youth unemployment thank you Georgina for this because I think it's quite an important issue um, to look also at the EU's role in this because I think often enough the EU is actually underlooked if we look at the responses that countries in Europe take against uh, youth unemployment and to encourage youth employment, but the EU is quite actually an important player, and especially as we have been mentioning this just before, because of the last crisis. Because in the last crisis, the EU somehow developed its own framework somehow, because of a general agreement also among its member states about the importance of EU intervention against youth unemployment. So there is this general framework that was established there with the so-called European Youth Guarantee, and a financial funding facility that actually allowed member states then to establish projects um, that could actually help young people to find employment. And based on that, the EU has, during the pandemic, actually taken quite a few steps and quite some important steps as well, I guess, um, that are quite interesting to look at and that kind of continue with this, but that they kind of want to at least a little bit enlarge or kind of like set this framework up in a better way in a certain way. So for instance, what is quite important to, to look at, and I think maybe Lydia can give us a, a better insight even in this, is actually that the Recovery Fund Next Generation EU, and especially Recovery and Resilience Facility, so the EU's large funding facility about which there was so much talk last year, actually includes something that we could call a youth pillar. So member states are actually supposed to dedicate funding to policies for the next generation, children, the youth, such as education and skills. And I think the European Parliament actually had quite an important role in fighting for this and actually bringing this through. And I think this is quite an important thing that we have there as the EU's response to the pandemic. Then there's also a proposal for a renewed youth guarantee, which I said before was a somewhat of a response to the last crisis. What is this youth guarantee? It's quite interesting also to look at, but I think to sum it up in like one sentence, which one could say it's somehow like an instrument to coordinate national policies on youth unemployment and to share practices that member states have made that have worked to encourage youth employment. So I think it's quite an interesting tool as well because it kind of is also, um, it kind of looks at the quantity, but also the quality of youth employment and wants to enlarge on youth employment by actually this sharing of practices among member states. And in this sense, it worked quite well to some extent, um, also in the last crisis. And something that is just right about to be announced and could be in a very interesting response also to uh, a tool to fight youth employment is the Commission's announcement in the, on President von der Leyen's State of the Union address for the ALMA program, which means Aim, Learn, Master and Achieve. And the idea of this program is to give young, also unemployed people, but also young people that are looking for experiences, to give them an experience of temporary employment abroad for some two to six months. I think this could be a really interesting tool, but it's still to be discussed and we will see, similar to the renewed youth guarantee, what this will bring about in the next years. 
Rocky Mount, so sort of a good overview of three big uh, initiatives where and how the EU is trying to support member states with this problem. But, you know, fundamentally, the EU does play a secondary role, I think, to, to member states on employment and social rights. Um, you know, Lydia, as we said at the very start, you've been very active um, on this issue. Um, you've heard what Marcus just set out and you know what do you think the eu could do more really to help young people access the job market yeah you're right georgina as you you said um that the eu plays a secondary role to uh, member states on employment and, and social rights it's it's also we have to see this from uh, the institutional or, or, or perspective, which is what is provisioned in the treaties, and uh, employment and social um, policies are a competence, um, uh, an almost exclusive competence uh, to member states. So uh, the EU has uh, a slightly um, uh, light uh, touch on upon those. Um, and this is not different when we talk about education and the higher education policies. Um, as a, a starting point, uh, we, we all understand that uh, the, the ev- development, evolution, um, the, the, the rhythm of, 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 uh, uh, of development is, is happening faster and faster in a, in a, very, in a very quick uh, um, path. And the pandemic is accelerating, uh, for example, digitization. Um, I remember uh, one year and a half ago when we were told that we had to go home and we were going to stay at home and we, we didn't know how we were going to work. Uh, and suddenly, two weeks after, we were all connected, uh, having online meetings with uh, 200 or 182 MEPs uh, with all the the difficult uh, the, the disruptions that we have had to face because the infrastructure was not ready for that. So, but in in, in a matter of weeks or in a month, we were uh, working di- fully digitally. Um, uh, but this is this is a, a, an example of how digitization is producing huge changes in the job market and in, in labor in general. Uh, so. This is to say that educational institutions cannot remain indifferent to any of these changes, right? Um, in, the, in the last decades, uh, the EU has made uh, many millions of euros available to support science um, and skills. And all of us agree about the EU key role uh, in supporting businesses and in supporting the development of those businesses, in particular the SMEs. Um, so, well, you know, um, European funds have been uh, have made it possible uh, to create and to um, grow many companies. But by the end of this summer, of this last summer, about three million young people in Europe are all recently graduated in their possibly in their mid twenties were unemployed and were actively looking for for work. So this means that something is failing. We already know that the youth guarantee is being um, reinforced at, at this very moment, but I still think it's not enough. Uh, some some recent studies show that by 2023, in, in two years, the, the EU Green Recovery Plan can create 2.3 million jobs across the, 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 the block, um, and many will be high-skilled jobs. So 
young generations have to be prepared to take advantage of that. And for that, we need to rethink educational systems. Um, it is, uh, if we look at the map, if we look at Europe, we have still very different educational systems. And I'm not saying that we have, you know, we have to have one system that fits all because it doesn't work. We, education is directly linked to the cultural heritage, to the historical roots and so on. So, but we have to acknowledge that if we want to be a competitive force uh, in the global scale, we are still lagging behind or, or there are still a lot of discrepancies across EU member states, uh, for example, on digital skills. And digitalization and, uh, is going to be a big component of the green transition. So we really have to catch up and it's not an easy task to do overnight. Um, and as I said, well, the EU has no competence on this matter, but the, the way it, it directs its funding can indeed influence and drive to some desirable and necessary and necessary changes. Thank you, Lydia. And as you were talking, you know, broadening it out and saying it's not just about you know, sort of youth unemployment supporting the young, it's about thinking about labour market opportunities um, and all the rest of it. And I saw Monica and Mark sort of nodding. Monica, perhaps I can sort of turn to you next. Um, Lydia talked about the wider labour market. Do you think there are any lessons here? For the EU and how it should use this pandemic, um, sort of to rethink the labour market to decrease, you know, high unemployment in the future. Mm, yes, like um, I agree with Lydia that uh, she brought a lot of points to discussion. How pandemic underlined uh, this uh, changes uh, in the labour market during the last decade. And currently, uh, many many people search from uh, internships or other non-standard forms of work. Uh, such as temporary contracts or working through platforms. Uh, in consequence, uh, as I mentioned before, they are not fully covered by social protection schemes. And during the pandemic, uh, during the pandemic, many uh, young people left the labor market not noticed by anyone. So uh, I agree that we should rethink how to adjust uh, our labor market policies to include uh, particular groups like gig economy workers. Um, Another uh, thing we can observe after uh, we can observe uh, because uh, of pandemic uh, is a higher level of skill mismatch bec- uh, between the people who lost their jobs and uh, jobs which are created right now. And uh, for example, Eurus, the EU agency which is facilitating employment mobility, reveals that most recent jobs. Uh, jobs offers are in the high skill sectors like healthcare, science and innovation, information technology and digital, digital communication. And vacancies in those fields stay empty while unemployment still does not uh, back to pre-pandemic uh, levels among, among young people. And uh, easier as it is uh, to say that governments focus um, on enhancing skills and training. But uh, labor market is dynamic, and many occupations which uh, young will be working in the future are not created yet. So uh, we also need to know what are the skills of the future. And also, uh, lifelong learning uh, can um, avoid massive unemployment in the future, uh, which can be caused, um, which can be uh, caused due to the changes in the labor market, that, like. Um, automation and robotization, 
but still it cannot be an ad hoc solution. So uh, it's already right now we should teach this approach from the early uh, level of education. Great, thank you very much for that. Um, Mark, you know, Lydia um, and also Monica talked about some differences in education, um, but it's also about opportunities. Uh, you know, over the past 10 years, we've sort of normalised unpaid internships as stepping stones uh, at the beginning of careers. You know, if, if you were there advising President von der Leyen, uh, you know, what is the one thing that you think the EU should do to foster uh, more opportunities for young people? Actually, a very good question. And I think that's a tough question because there's many different options of how we could act. But one thing that kind of relates also to what Monica and Lydia have said before, and that really uh, belongs to my heart, that really is important to me, is actually um, something that the Commission and the European Union have been starting to do over the last decade, but is maybe not pushed to the, to the, to the, to the last limit in the end. So basically what they have been doing over the last decade is that they did not only focus on the quantity of youth employment, so the availability of youth employment, but they also focused on the quality. And I think you just read about, uh, actually alluded to this, Georgina, by talking about the quality frameworks that the European Union has also established for internships, but also for apprentices. Because one thing that I think is really important also to remember if we talk about youth unemployment, also if we talk about education, is the fact that actually youth employment, if young people find employment, is much more often than not actually attributed. For instance, you could take this case of Spain, where I think 40%, and this is, I think, a statistics from the last Euro crisis, but actually it's still a lot. But I think in the last Euro crisis, 40% of the youth, young people that were actually working, were actually working in atypical employments. What does that mean? For instance, internships, temporary employment, somehow also we could call, um, although this is much more debated, we could maybe take apprenticeships under this definition. So I think one thing that we really need to look into is the quality of youth employment, because also, also for instance, if young people are in temporary employment, they are also the ones that actually lose their employments first. So those are the most of them that actually have lost their employment already in the pandemic. Also, it's difficult to actually change between employments and to actually make use of your on-job skills that you have acquired in one employment. So I think what we really make, need to make sure is that these employments that young people find as well, because we are already looking into the quantity of employment with unemployment subsidies and so on, youth unemployment schemes and so on. And what we really need to look into is also the quality of the employment that young people find. So they add, then afterwards, I mean, it's very nice that they can change employments and it's also important, I think, especially for the young generation to have this opportunity to get different experiences. But what is important is also that the skills that they acquire in one employment can be transferred to another and there's not so many like atypical also working conditions that they are um, kind of like challenging working conditions where they're not paid enough, where they have, don't have good working hours, anything. So I think this is something really that I, in my dream, the EU should focus even more, even more on, because I think this is something that actually is important and also for young people that will lose their jobs, because obviously at some point people, people, we cannot, we cannot ensure that people are working for forever. But at this point, we need to make sure that there is actually the opportunity to find something else that is of a good quality. And I think with the youth guarantee, we've been starting to look into this. Uh, it's not pushed to the limits yet because many forms of young work that are still, also, for instance, in the emerging gig economy, are still kind of on the borderlines of what we're looking into. Um, but I think this could be really something that creates opportunities by actually also looking at the other side of the quality of the employment of young people. Great. So we sort of talked about education, about the right skills, about access, but also about the quality of, of opportunities as well. Um, you know, 
Lydia, Portugal during its presidency uh, of the council last year organised a social summit uh, in Porto um, and the declaration said many interesting things but one of them that really struck me was you know the younger generations are not only our future but they're also our present. You touched upon this at the very beginning um, of your introductory remarks. What do you think we can, we the EU can do to make sure that this young generation does not become the lost generation? Yeah, that's uh, that's what I, I said earlier. It's and it should be our uh, you know biggest concern that we leave no one behind. Um, a few months ago, I just started uh, to address that subject that you you're 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 asking me, um, and the world is experiencing a such um, rapid technological change that we will require new skills and high qualifications. And according to there's many reports uh, published uh, from different agencies or, and organizations, including the World Economic Forum, that in less, uh, uh, less, in less than a decade, until 2030, about 75% of the most requested or demanded professions in the world, um, they still don't exist. So we can already think about big data analysts and perhaps drone pilots or cryptocurrencies, uh, currency uh, brokers. Um, so there will be many other things that we don't imagine at the, in October 2021. Um, but there is something common about all these, these jobs. Uh, in, and I mentioned earlier, it's digital skills. The question, uh, therefore, is, is simple. Are schools and universities with the proper exception for some pilot projects are they preparing pre- uh, and prepared, uh, um, but preparing new generations for a very uncertain future? We are digital natives, so we are the ones who can benefit the most with, from new opportunities. But most schools uh, still have memory-based teaching. We need to encourage change in teaching methods. Uh, we need pedagogical uh, innovation, and for that, it is necessary to you know, deconstruct learning. We have to decide what are the learning outcomes, what is necessary to, to be learned, and um, and define how to teach. And of course, this doesn't mean that we don't know, we don't need to uh, in the 21st century to know the classics and to know philosophy. On the contrary, I think um, the more transversal profiles that we can be, um, the the more creatives we can be. Um, we we can deliver in a different um, uh, with a, with a, an added value because uh, you know during this is something that uh, in in the in the during the financial crisis in Portugal when we had troika in the country um, there was kind of a, a narrative uh, in the in the media uh, and in public opinion that you know if you go to study humanities or letters uh, that you're not going to have a future. It means it, it almost uh, suggesting that if you want to study philosophy, you are not going to be a philosopher. So because the job market is terrible, so don't go there. Or if you want to study history, or if you want to study, you know, um, languages, or there's no future there. And it's absolutely the future is in math and in science. It is true, but uh, we cannot neglect the importance of those other matters that um, contribute to you know a more enriched profile 
um, uh, more creative uh, uh, people um, that can actually thrive in this very complex and, and rapid changing world. Thank you. And that reminds me, I mean, I you know, went to school in, in Belgium, studied in the UK and, and sort of with years now of, of working, you know, in professional, but I always think, oh gosh, wouldn't it be nice to do a, a course on sort of geography at university and then do something on coding and then and still all the while continue, you know, reading up about political philosophy, which is something I love. So perhaps, yes, rethink the way that, that we offer courses, but also for people, of course, who don't go to university and and perhaps decide to do apprenticeships or things that are, are kind of more more practical, but but also so called vital for for the functioning of our societies. Um, I wanted to finish with a broader question, which I ask all my guests, um, but it's particularly relevant uh, building on sort of the idea of the Conference of the Future of Europe. So, you know, this conference that the EU has initiated, an attempt to try and engage EU citizens across Europe to tell the EU what it is that they expect. From the EU going forward. So, Monica, perhaps I can start with you and then I'll go to Mark and I'll finish with Lydia. If you could sum up the future of Europe in one word, what would it be? Uh, promising uh, and maybe uh, that's uh, wishful thinking, but uh, I think that it's something we all need. And it's not only about policy advisors or policymakers, but also citizens. Because uh, without believing that our future is bringing uh, new opportunities, we will never be able to take advantage of them. Mark? For me, the answer would be a project of solidarity, which is my word, even more than a project of diversity, because for me, this is the importance of this value is at least the lesson that we have learned um, from or should have learned, I guess, from the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's also among the EU's funding values since at least two, 2000s. And so I think this is something that we should be keeping in mind that also we do not lose sight from one another. And Lydia, what would your, your final word be? Uh, in three words, I think uh, the future of Europe is going to be disruptive, sustainable and inclusive. Interesting. And I, I, that is, I mean, three words instead of one, but I, but, but I agree that the future of Europe is probably all three. Well, thank you very much, Lydia, Monica, Mark. And um, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. This isn't something that I follow closely, um, but it strikes me that there are many things to do, many opportunities, lots of um, projects for solidarity, and also that it will be disruptive, but hopefully. Um, together we can find an optimistic way to address some of these problems. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. Thank you for listening to our fourth episode of What's Next for the EU podcast. Please join me next month where I'll be asking my guests what they thought of the COP26 climate conference and what the EU needs to do to meet the grave threat of climate change. Feel free to share this podcast on your favourite social media platforms, newsletters, and don't forget to tag the EPP at EPP Group. We'd love to hear from you too. If you want to get in touch, you can reach the EPP on their website, www.eppgroup.eu, on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram.